Looking for American-made solar modules? Look no further than Mission Solar Energy. Mission is our sponsor of the Energy Gang, and they are a high-quality solar manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission operates a 200-megawatt facility right here in the U.S. in Texas, and all of its products are designed, engineered, and assembled right there in Texas, offering long-term reliability and exceeding international standards by three times. If you want to learn more about high-performance American-made solar modules, go to missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, Donald Trump is back stateside after his impolitic trip to the NATO summit and his warm embrace with Vladimir Putin. With Trump kicking dirt all over Europe and nuzzling Pooty Poot's chin, you might have missed his comments on energy during that trip. We'll discuss the Trump-infused energy geopolitics tying Europe, Russia, and America together. Then, Ontario is facing its own political shakeup. New Premier Doug Ford is canceling wind contracts, ending cap-and-trade, and throwing out the CEO and board of the province's biggest utility. But he may have a rude awakening. It's going to be complicated going forward. We'll talk about the policy shift there in Ontario. Finally, Apple is making it easier for its suppliers to invest in solar and other renewables. What does it tell us about the power that big corporations wield in the renewables transition? Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are with me from Washington, D.C. Catherine is the chair of 38 North Solutions. Hey there. Hello. How are you? I'm great. Jigger is the president of Generate Capital. Hello, Jigger. Hey. So let's talk geopolitics. Uh, a lot is happening outside of the United States, directly influenced by the morass here in the United States. So the world watched in shock this week as Donald Trump stood side by side with Vladimir Putin and said he trusted Russia more than his own U.S. intelligence agencies when it comes to interference of the 2016 election. Days before, Trump went to Brussels for the NATO summit, and there he repeated his disdain for the alliance and called the European Union America's foe. He used that exact word, foe. Energy was also on the agenda. Although it got buried, Trump made a few comments about natural gas that that tell us uh, a lot about America's evolving relationship with Russia and Europe. And they speak to this bigger issue going on in Europe around energy security, which is a really fascinating discussion. So I wanted to use this opportunity to address it. So just a bit more background here. In the lead up to the NATO summit, Trump had been critical of a planned pipeline called Nord Stream 2 that's going to pump natural gas from Russia to Germany. Um, It's a much bigger pipeline than currently exists. Uh, And the U.S. government has long opposed the pipeline. Now, Trump kind of echoing that poked fun at the Germans, saying they were waving the white flag. And then at the NATO summit, He mentioned the pipeline to the secretary general, seemingly using it as a way to argue against paying for NATO. We're supposed to protect you from Russia, but Germany is making pipeline deals with Russia. You tell me if that's appropriate. Explain that. And then this week, Trump went into a private room for hours with Putin, a private meeting, and he emerged singing a different tune about Russian gas. He called him a competitor and a good competitor he is. And I think the word competitor is a compliment, said Trump. So there's actually a lot more than meets the eye. There is a really important story about German reliance on Russian gas, the European split about that relationship, the impact of Germany's phasing out coal and nuclear, and the geopolitical role of American natural gas. So, Catherine, um, what's your perspective on why Trump is interjecting himself into this pipeline debate now? 
Yeah, so I'm not going to try to get into Trump's head, but if you really take the word competitor, that is exactly what we're going to be doing because our position is the U.S. wants to sell liquefied natural gas to Europe. And um, a lot of European countries, especially Eastern European countries like Poland and Lithuania, who've built LNG terminals to try to get Norwegian gas, would like to get off of dependence on Russian gas. Russia has been gouging them on prices. they this new gas line would actually enable an economic blockade against Ukraine. So that would be very destructive. So there are a lot of reasons that Russian gas has not been a good thing for Europe. But if you look at Germany, that is a totally different issue. So Germany gets about 50% of its natural gas from Russia, but natural gas makes up only about 20% of Germany's energy supply. So it's really not as they're not as dependent on it as the stories would lead one to believe. This is really very much a political decision by Angela Merkel. And I think perhaps Trump was trying to sort of gain some leverage over her, which he has tried to do before as well. So I think that all plays into it. But there's the issue of purely competition with LNG and the U.S. wanting to sell gas to Europe, which uh, Europe is only about 14% of our market now. So that would be helpful to U.S. LNG versus kind of the geopolitical issues in Europe. So, Jigger, it's basically been official U.S. policy to oppose this pipeline for a couple of reasons. One, because of our historic relationship with Russia. Two, because we have a lot of natural gas and we want to sell it to Western European countries. Um, Was Trump coming out of that meeting with Putin and saying like, well, you know, I guess we're competitors and I admire you as a competitor. Is that an important change in policy or is that just Trump saying whatever he wants to say? Well, I think at this point it's the latter, right? I mean, even even his own administration was flabbergasted by all of the things that came out of his mouth this last week. So I don't think it was official policy. But I, like, I do think that there are certain facts of geography that uh, make these kinds of decisions almost uh, fait accompli. And I just think that Many folks believe that choices exist that don't. Um, You know, U.S. LNG is really expensive. We're selling LNG to markets in Asia for $10 a million BTU. The LNG prices in the U.K. are clearing at like $7.50 a million BTU. So nobody in the U.S. wants to sell gas to Europe at $7.50 a million BTU or even prices less than that. Separately, it's really cheap. Even with $11 billion of cost to build a pipeline, it's really cheap to ship gas from Russia to um, to Germany. So you can imagine the Germans looking the other way and saying, our industrial sector needs this gas. The third piece of it, and the part that I'm most interested in, is how, uh, how obvious it is that Angela Merkel doesn't believe in their own renewable heat efforts in Germany, right? If she actually believed that those heat efforts would work, then she would have spent billions upon billions of dollars in feed-in tariffs to promote it as opposed to building this pipeline. But I guess she doesn't believe in it. Okay, this brings us a little bit closer to topics that are more relevant to our audience, the renewable energy component um, and sort of the domestic energy supply of Germany. So... Germany has long supported biogas um, in the industrial sector and in the agricultural sector. 
What's up with and, and and combined heat and power too for district heating? What's up with those efforts? Why have we not seen those efforts put a dent into Germany's natural gas consumption that would prevent them from having to build out this new pipeline? Yeah, you know, I think it's really. I think it's really a matter of uh, whether or not folks believe that this can be rolled out at scale. I just think that when you think about what Denmark has done, Denmark has basically mandated that everyone plug in to their district heating system. It's just it's just a mandate, right? I mean, you just have to do it, right? And then they use some natural gas for the uh, production of the heat. But in general, you could also produce it using geothermal technology. You could use it using, you know, with biogas and other types of things. Uh, but in general, I think Germany has resisted the, the type of mandates that Denmark has uh, put in place in order, in order to achieve the goal. So there's this other factor in the power sector, and that is a bunch of coal plants are going to trip offline. Uh, Germany wants to phase out nuclear power, and it's going to start relying more on natural gas. So in the electric power sector, even if it could ramp up uh, more localized uh, biogas for district heating, um, you know, electric heat pumps, uh, geothermal heat pumps, it would still have this increased reliance on natural gas in the power sector. And this is uh, due to the combination of policies that Germany has put into place. I mean, the grid is still very stable, but it is going to have to balance out a lot of that renewable energy with natural gas if these coal plants start to uh, get phased out. And of course, nuclear plants get phased out. So this is Germany's own doing. Yeah, I th- look, I, particularly the nuclear power plants are its own doing. And, you know, separately, there is there are ways of actually getting, you know, heat from n- nuclear power plants as well. And so there's a lot of uh, missed opportunities there. I, I just think that Germany is an industrial power. It is not surprising to me that they care about having a stable supply of natural gas to be able to feed their industry. And so I don't fault Germany for their decision-making. I'm just simply commenting on the fact that it is clear that the German government, even though they have a mandate of using 14% renewable heat by 2020, um, does not believe that renewable heat can meet their uh, their heating needs and instead you know, believe that they have to use natural gas. Separately, on the electricity grid piece of it, uh, look, I think many of us have talked about using battery storage. We've talked about using um, hydrogen, which German car companies are still obsessed with. Um, we've also talked about uh, using demand response and load control to provide a lot of the services that natural gas has traditionally provided to load level the grid. And, you know, Germany, I don't think, has been leading in those areas as much as they could be. Yeah, but the the trends show that natural gas is increasing in Europe because of switching from coal. So that's considered sort of a short-term power sector issue. But the trends also show that on building and industrial sectors, that natural gas is set to decrease. So I think we can safely assume that Trump is not thinking of any of these issues when he talks about that natural gas pipeline. With that said, his comments were quite interesting because, uh, you know, he has interjected himself into this issue. And he had implicitly at that NATO meeting kind of held the pipeline over Germany's head and said, like, well, if if you're going to be relying on Russian natural gas, why should we be spending money on the NATO alliance to protect you from Russian threats? 
And um, it, it was just interesting to me that he used that as one of his arguments against U.S. military support for NATO. No, it reminds me of that book, you know, what a kindergartner would say. But in fact, it actually is a kindergartner who's saying it. <laughs> Before we continue on, let's talk about Mission Solar Energy. So if you're a developer looking for American-made modules, well, Mission Solar is your company. If you're a consumer and you really want American-made equipment, ask for Mission Solar Energy. America's booming solar industry employs over 260,000 people now. And Mission Solar is one of those proud employers. So if you invest in Mission Solar modules, you're investing in America's workforce. It has a 200-megawatt facility in San Antonio, Texas, supporting manufacturing, engineering, and office jobs right there in the heart of America. So its central location in the United States means that Mission Solar can fulfill the needs of domestic developers quickly. And it means that projects move and stay on schedule. Mission is going to be introducing an even higher performance module later this year. So in order to find out more about where that fits into the product line, check out missionsolar.com slash products. Mission Solar, American-made solar modules. Let's head up to Canada now. We haven't been to Canada in a while, but there's a lot happening there, too. So as of this month, Ontario has a new premier, Doug Ford. He's the brother of the late Rob Ford, the mayor of Toronto, the, the former mayor of Toronto of crack-smoking fame. Doug Ford is getting compared to Trump for his bombastic populist style of politics. Ford rejects that comparison. He is quite different for a lot of reasons. But one thing he is mirroring is Trump's disdain for climate policy. Within weeks of taking office, Ford says he's dismantling Ontario's cap-and-trade program. He's ending some big renewable energy contracts. He's killing programs for EVs and energy efficiency, which were funded by cap-and-trade. Um, and he's also trying to get rid, or he did get rid of the board and the CEO at Hydro One, Ontario's biggest utility. Ontario has some of the highest electricity prices in Canada, and Ford says these moves will lower them. We have talked about this issue in the past, and the electricity price increases in Ontario are very complicated, as they are pretty much everywhere else. So, um, Catherine, give us a little bit more background on why Doug Ford came into office with all these programs in his crosshairs. Yeah, well, just think back about the way Ontario has moved forward on their energy policy. So in 2005, 20% of their electricity was from coal. And by 2015, they had zero coal. And the way they were able to do that, they have about 60% nuclear, 10% wind and solar, 10% gas, and 25% hydro. So the clean energy piece, wind, solar, and hydro, is a huge chunk. And the way they were able to build it out was by putting together these long-term, some at this point, 40 times the market value of projects under feed-in tariffs and large renewable procurement. The rates, and it's not just because of this, but a lot of other factors that the rates skyrocketed. The worst job in Ontario, I have been told by previous energy ministers, is being the energy minister in Ontario because it has just been a no-win situation. They're locked into these contracts. They are um, the prices don't seem to be going down. So that's one thing he he ran on. He's the party is called the Progressive Conservative Party, and he said, "I'm going to cut." down your rates. So in order to do that, I'm going to cut back on the EV program. So cutting uh, rebates, I'm going to 
cut down on all these green energy contracts that he says are unaffordable, 758 contracts they pulled back on. These were ones that did not have notice to proceed under the feed-in tariff or had met their, they had not met their key development milestones. So he felt able to do that. There have been some that are further along that are a little bit of concern, but most of them had not um, been doing well. They, he cut back on the Green Ontario Fund for smart thermostats. So he's really doing a huge rollback. Um, one of the keys is that Canada as a country is requiring provinces to set cap and trade prices. So if you pull out of cap and trade, what happens is it reverts to the national price. And so um, by 2019, $20 um, is the backstop, whereas $50 by 2022, a ton, $50 a ton is the backstop. So I, a metric for a metric ton of carbon. So um, they're going to have to go with the cap and trade that the nation sets, whether or not the province does. I, I think that Ford wants to take them to court for that. But, you know, he is trying to cut back on prices. And that's that's been his number one goal. And uh, unfortunately, it's, it's like the whiplash effect to what they did. You know, they didn't do it perfectly in the first place. They got where they needed to go very quickly. But now there's a bit of a backlash. Two issues there. One is the carbon tax and the complications associated with repealing the cap and trade system in Ontario, because as you said, it will get superseded by the federal carbon tax. Um, so let's talk about that second. First, the rising energy price piece, which is of course interconnected, but more directly related to these long-term contracts that you outlined. And the, you know, part of it was some of the long-term 20-year feed-in tariff contracts that were you know three times market rate or more. Um, but it, this is a long. Ontario has this long history, and since the the t turn of the century, really the the two thousands, Ontario has been um, restructuring its markets, encouraging the the signing of these long term contracts, overbuilt capacity uh, under Dalton McGuinty many years back. They had planned these natural gas plants and then made a lot of investments at ratepayer expense and then scrapped the projects. But ratepayers were still on the hook for billions in costs. So there's a lot wrapped up in this. With that said, I want to isolate the renewable energy piece because that's what Doug Ford is really focused on. Um, any idea how much we can blame the feed-in tariff contracts, the renewable energy contracts on rising prices, which are very complicated and have been rising for a variety of reasons over the last 18 years? Well, it's not that renewable energy was solely at fault. Clearly, there are a lot of issues in Ontario. But I think just to put it in perspective for you, um, you know, Quebec, which is the neighbor to the east of Ontario, has an average electricity price of 6.8 cents a kilowatt hour retail to the customer. Ontario's is close to 14 cents a kilowatt hour. I just think that, you know, th the the level of sort of, you know, just um, spending like a drunken sailor that occurred under the Ontario energy ministers was something that was systemic across all of the decisions that they made, right? For many of us, as we've talked about in this podcast, went to Ontario and told them that their policies were too rich and told them that they were going to lead to pigs get fed and hogs get slaughtered. And they just didn't listen. They had people like Paul Guype who were like, you know, 
nipping in their ear saying, oh, no, don't worry about it. This didn't affect Germany at all. But they, what they don't realize in Germany, one in six people in Germany give to Greenpeace. That's not true in Ontario. And so they just couldn't actually, you know, stand up to the withering pressure of, you know, these sort of, you know, these sort of decisions that they made. And, you know, some things like the natural gas piece, you can blame them for and say, well, you know, they've, they, they created these half-assed measures and then they end up having to, to rate base the infrastructure. But for the renewable energy, you know, policies, I mean, I know for a fact, because I gave the presentations, that they knew what they could have done and what the best practices were in California and New York and other places, and they just chose not to implement them. Well, and hydro rates were really high, too. So Ford has promised to lower the rates by 12% and control salaries. I know that's that's more optics than anything. But the province owns 49.9% of Hydro One. And when, so with the board resigned, the 14-member board and the CEO resigned en masse, you know, Ford is going to be able to handpick people and control their salaries. So that will be an optics issue, but also trying to lower the rates is going to be a key piece of it. So it's not certainly not just the renewables, uh, not not just wind and solar. Right. So, Jigger, you brought up an interesting point, and it echoes our previous conversation about that Michael Schellenberger piece about wind and solar driving up electricity rates. First of all, he used faulty data, but his argument was that wind and solar inherently raise electricity rates. And what we're saying here is that no, they don't. There's nothing about them that should inherently raise electricity rates. It's all about policy and how you implement that policy. And Ontario had 15, 18 years of poor policy decisions that resulted in very steep long-term contracts and an overbuild of capacity. And ratepayers have been on the hook for that. But we can't blame wind and solar for that necessarily. It's the policy decisions to led that led to more expensive deployment of those resources. Yeah, and I think that this is a broader point across the country too. I mean, the utility companies are just as guilty of this, frankly, as the renewable energy developers, which is that that in the 1980s, we actually had amazing system efficiency. I mean, the system efficiency of the electricity grid was something like, you know, 79, 80%. Today, the system efficiency of most electricity grids in the country are down in the 60s, right? And so that causes things to be more expensive, right? When you build stuff and then don't use it fully, it becomes more expensive. And so that's why battery storage is so important, because it raises system efficiency. That's why demand response and load control are so important, because it raises system efficiency. And I just feel like, you know, folks are just not thinking through from an engineering perspective how one actually keeps keep rates low. Well, you keep rates low by making fewer capital investments and by using the capital investments that you've already used more efficiently. Yeah, so that's exactly what the Ontario ISO is doing right now. So their forecasts show that they have plenty of capacity for the near term and they don't need to build out anymore. But what the ISO is doing is they're developing market policies. So they're going to be doing an incremental capacity auction that's going to allow demand response, distributed energy resources, consumer-based applications and products to be able to participate in that. And that should help increase the efficiency of what they already have. So I think there is a silver lining here in that that is on pace and proceeding um, with the ISO. And that's something that's really important to pay attention to and to participate in if possible. Okay. So on to the carbon pricing piece that you mentioned, Catherine. 
So Doug Ford is repealing the cap-and-trade program, and, of course, he's got this looming deadline for the federal carbon price that will steadily rise. And um, he says that he's going to issue a legal challenge and make sure that Ontario doesn't have a carbon price. But, in fact, uh, another province, Saskatchewan, early on in the uh, national policymaking process, considered what it would take to challenge this carbon pricing policy. And they determined that the high court would probably strike it down and probably say that the federal government has authority to issue a carbon price. So they decided to scrap any legal challenge. And Doug Ford is coming in and saying, well, we may end up taking up a legal challenge. I've also seen an estimate that it would cost about $30 million just to challenge uh, the, the national carbon pricing effort. And so Doug Ford has come in talking about how he's going to slash government spending. But if he decides to challenge this carbon price, well, he's going to be spending tens of millions of taxpayer dollars. So he's in a real bind here. Well, also, it takes the power away from him and back into the hands of their federal government on carbon pricing. So I think what a lot of the other provinces have decided is it's better to have the future in our own hands. And businesses have come along and said, yeah, because we want to help craft our own province's rules and pricing and move forward on our terms. And I think what this will do is it'll put it back. It's a gamble because it'll put it back in the hands of the, you know, the federal statute. And, you know, and, and so it will it certainly hinges everything on his ability to win in court. Yeah, it's just bad policy. Why would you take a federal policy, a one size fits all federal policy over a localized policy that has already been spending billions of dollars on localized energy programs and efficiency, electric vehicles, etc. Um, the trade off is pretty poor. He might do that. He is pretty good at politics. Well, fascinating politics up there in Ontario. And it will be really interesting to see how the carbon tax debate up there plays into Doug Ford's decision making. So let's keep our eyes on that one. Let's um, go to Apple now. So if governments are not going to step up to the plate on this stuff, big companies increasingly will. Apple has a new $300 million fund to help Chinese suppliers invest in renewables. Um, now that Apple is properly tracking and trying to control its own emissions, it wants to reach down the supply chain and encourage manufacturers to do the same. And it's been building on this work since 2015, now tying an actual dollar amount to helping suppliers. So does this mark a shift in how big companies decarbonize their supply chains? Jigger, your thoughts on this specific fund? Well, I think the specific fund is fine. It's put together nicely. I think uh, asset management group within Deutsche Bank, I think, is running it. Um, I think that what led to this fund, I think, is the more interesting question, which is that Apple has a lot of ways by which to affect change, right? I mean, Apple could, um, in their procurement contracts themselves, just say, you're not allowed to be a supplier at Apple, unless you're at 100% renewable energy, right? Or using less water or paying your workers fairly or all the things that, that you could do, right? They could separately say, we're going to provide you an incentive to be a supplier at Apple, right? So if you hit these milestones, we'll give you uh, 1.5% higher price than, you know, we're currently paying for the stuff that we're paying for. Or, you know, there's lots of things that they could do. But 
what you find is, is that these other mechanisms are really difficult to implement because Apple, like Nike and others who've attempted these things in the past, Unilever, um, they just really want to be able to fire their suppliers at a moment's notice. And so they don't want any of these contracts to have these sort of long-term um, long-term features to them because they're worried that it, that if they terminate the contracts, then um, the supplier is going to come back to them and say, wait a second, you guys made me invest all this money in renewable energy and energy efficiency, and now what? You guys are just going to leave me at the altar. And so this standing up of a separate fund feels easier and better for them because then they can put these mandates in. They can then have a separate arm that borrows the money to implement the the programs. But if, for whatever reason, they had to fire them on the supplier side, then it's really the fund that loses money, not Apple. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it in that context. So it gives Apple, it puts Apple at an arm's length from the suppliers and gives them more flexibility. That's right. But they're part of the supplier clean energy program since 2015. So they have 23 partners in this in this program. And um, my sense is that they really do want their suppliers to do right. And they're doing everything they can to set it, set it up so they can. Well, yes, but they're not doing everything they can to set it up properly. I mean, I had this long conversation with Hannah Jones over at Nike when I was running the Carbon War Room. She's like, well, how do we get this done? I was like, here's how you would do it. She's like, yeah, that's never going to happen with the CFO of Nike. And so it's just what it is, right? I mean, they just, all of these guys, like, they don't actually want to have responsibility. Like, you remember back in the golden days of, you know, the 1950s when Heinz basically owned an entire town and felt responsibility for all the orphans that lived there and everything else? That just isn't the way of the world anymore. Like, these companies are like, we're your best friend until we're not. And then when we're not, then we will kick it, kick it to the side of the road. And particularly in geopolitical terms, right? So some of this stuff is also like, let's say China is on the outs with the United States, right? And Apple needs to move their supply chain to Vietnam or Cambodia. They're like, we kind of just want to be able to do it. And, and yeah, we're, we like you guys, but we don't like you that much. Yeah, and I would just go back to look at Apple a, a little bit more holistically from their leadership perspective. So Lisa Jackson is their vice president of environment policy and social initiatives. She came out of the Obama administration's Environmental Protection Agency. She led it from 2009 to 2013 and got the whole clean power plan process started. Um, she comes from the regulatory space, although she is a chemical engineer. She reports directly to Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple. And what she is trying to do is get things done in a business in the absence of regulation. So she's saying, okay, we're going to do this as a company. This is They just put out their 11th report. So they have been doing this for a while. They installed over three gigawatts of solar in 2017. They're doing pretty well. I reached out to the company and, and her team said, look, when we think about data centers and we build them, we first map out how much energy we think they're going to use. And then we figure out how can we serve that with clean energy? They would rather not purchase RECs. They'd rather do new projects. Right now they have 25 clean energy projects in development and 15 more in construction. They're trying to do that in China and everywhere that they operate. Um, so they really have taken a long view of this. They are they want to be 
over four gigawatts worldwide by 2020. And, uh, you know, I think they're taking it really seriously. This does not feel to me like the days of greenwashing. They're really looking at every facility as potential for renewables, existing renewables, but also for looking at new clean energy technologies like micro hydro projects that they're trying out in Oregon. So I feel like they're they're really on doing the right right thing now and they want to serve as a model to others. Yeah. And I think inevitably when you talk about big companies, there's always a massive PR spin to this. But I totally agree that this is different from the greenwashing that we saw en masse a decade ago. They're putting together some super sophisticated teams that are creating the financial structures and actually managing renewable energy for their facilities. And these are sophisticated teams that didn't exist or were very bare bones a decade ago. So I think that there is something fundamentally different about this. And their priority is efficiency. Like they say, all right, the the fewer electrons we have to use you know, that's the best way to lower greenhouse gases. So they they really do have their priorities straight with efficiency. Right. But I think both things can be true, right? I mean, the fact that Microsoft and Google and Apple and lots of other people are now approaching 100% renewable energy if they haven't achieved it already. And Google is now trying to even match the time of day when the energy is produced with when they consume it, which is even better, um, is awesome. And I'm certainly not against the positive work they're doing. And I'm certainly not accusing them of greenwashing. I'm simply saying that when you talk to this particular initiative, what Unilever and Nike and Apple and others have said is that we want to green our supply chain, but we don't want to own the solar plants for our suppliers because we may not be using our suppliers for the next 20 years. And so you know, we don't want to own all that infrastructure for suppliers we're not going to be using. So we're going to have to figure out another way to get that done. And, you know, I think the easier way of doing it is to use their procurement contracts. That's sort of the more straightforward way where you say, I'm going to pay you extra to do this. And because you're basically going to do whatever I incentivize you to do, you will do it. They are, you know, using this fund approach, which I think is smart on their part, because I think it's what works within the laws of capitalism. But it it's the reason why they're doing it that way, as opposed to a more straightforward approach. Super interesting. And I think we're just beginning to feel out how this corporation supplier relationship is going to work as companies tighten up their carbon reduction goals and expand their renewable energy goals. I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, let's give our listeners a free electron. Catherine, what is yours this week? And I only have one. Uh, oh, wow. I know. I thought y'all would like that. Um, I There was a great report released this week called Renewables on the Rise 2018, and it was published by Environment America. And it tracks renewable po- renewable deployment from 2008 to 2017. So we have in America, 39 times more solar, four times more wind, 7.7% less energy use per capita. They go through which states did the best, which programs worked. um, And then then they come up with some recommendations of what else can we do to further grow it. So I feel like it's a great... um, not just a baseline of where we are and where we've been, but also what's worked and what will continue to work and how do we continue to move ahead on the transition. And um, so I thought it was a really good report. Jigger, what's your free electron? 
So I've got two of them. Well, one is basically uh, there's a great report by Wallet Hub, which is not known for their energy work, but more for you know finance information for consumers. Um, basically, looking through EIA data and showing um, how much people spend on total energy consumption um, by state. So you know, looking at uh, dr- driving distances, but also electricity bills, heating oil bills, etc. And it's actually quite surprising how many um, energy-heavy states are in the top 10, with Wyoming being the most expensive place to live from an energy consumption basis. Uh, with, and, you know, they show that 25 million American families around the country used 22% of their household income after tax uh, for energy consumption, which I thought was interesting. Right. So a um, lot of the states with cheaper electricity prices... Um, have fewer incentives for energy efficiency, maybe don't have programs in their states to educate people about home performance and therefore end up spending a lot more on energy. Is that is that right? Yeah, three of the top 10 states are Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia because Southern Company does a particularly horrible job of this. Um, so it was, uh, it, was, it was quite fascinating, the report. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was just in this time of extraordinary... Um, events, global events occurring. I just think it's important uh, for me and for I think for many others was we're trying to find news stories that actually were informative as opposed to the ones that we seem to read every day. Um, The one I found was in the Irish Times, um, Fintan O'Toole um, just wrote this extraordinary piece about trial runs for fascism are in full flow and really describes how we are all getting desensitized to things that we normally would have actually been up in arms around about and it's just such a great piece around how all of us need to be vigilant if we really want to protect our democracy and i just encourage everyone to read it so in my reading list this morning i saw a story from the washington post about how higher temperatures correlate with lower test scores and worse cognitive functioning. And they outlined a few recent studies looking at how heat exposure can drop exam performance by double digits. And that's among healthy college-age people. So you can imagine that it could potentially be worse for um, elderly folks uh, or people with um, you know cognitive disabilities. The big question, of course, is what will this mean on a societal level as the planet warms? The, the areas hit hardest by climate change are going to be the areas that don't have the best access to air conditioning. And you can imagine just another wedge being created between rich and poor. So the study grabbed my attention because it brings up all these thorny and largely invisible societal issues that might be exacerbated by a warming planet. That's all, folks. Thanks for joining us each and every week. We appreciate you being with us. Check us out anywhere you get your podcasts. Review us, rate us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or the platform of your choice, Um, send us an email to podcast at greentechmedia.com to let us know what kind of stories you want to hear. In fact, we've got a bunch of notes from Canadian listeners asking us to talk about Canadian politics, and so that directly, directly informs our decision to talk about some of these thorny issues up in Ontario and elsewhere. So you influence the way we talk about these stories. Please reach out to us. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang, a production of Green Tech Media. Green Tech Media.